The book of Exodus, we are going through the Ten Commandments. Last week we kicked off our series sort of looking at the preamble of, of uh, the commandments, which is verses 1 and 2. So today as we read God's Word, we're going to reread verses 1 and 2 with three added on to that as we look at the first commandment that the Lord gives us. So would you turn in your Bible to Exodus chapter 20? We'll be looking at verses 1 through 3. Hear the word of the Lord. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. This is the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Our Lord, uh, our God, by your spirit, help us to understand your word. Even more, by the same Spirit, enable us to flee to Christ and by His grace walk in the way of truth and righteousness. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So A.W. Tozer gave that quote that I read at the beginning of the service. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. He goes on, the history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion. And man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. Another way to look at this quote that is quite humbling is to think it through through the words of Paul Tripp. Paul Tripp says this, Human beings by their very nature are worshipers. Worship is not something we do. It defines who we are. Everybody worships. It's just a matter of what or whom we serve. So again, as the people of Israel are gathered there on the mountain uh, before God, this is exactly what the Lord is revealing to them. And He is also revealing it to us here in this first commandment. It all begins with Yahweh, the Creator God, whose very words formed all that there is, all that we see, all that we hear, all that we experience. He forms every bit of this in space and in time. He also formed human beings. He formed human beings, and I want you to think about this, out of the dirt of the earth, out of dust. He formed us, and He formed us to be worshipers. You know, they don't have little doggy churches, do they? They don't have cat shrines, do they? No. We were made in the image of God to worship Him. So as we consider, you shall have no other gods before me, it's important that we understand what the Lord means. So this morning, we're going to delve into the commandment. And it begs us to live with undivided hearts. That's what it's, it's calling us to do. Live with undivided hearts. And so to do that, we need to understand that, you know, that there are no other gods of the tribe, the cave, the marketplace, or the theater. That'll be our first point. There are no other gods of the tribe, the cave, the marketplace, or the theater. And the second thing we need to understand is that believers are called to 
undivided hearts before the one true God. And so let's consider what it means when we think about that. No other gods of the tribe, the cave, the marketplace, or the theater. When God commands, you shall have no other gods before me, there's a question that automatically arises from that. Are there other gods? Are there actually other gods? Well, no, but yes. Huh. No, but yes. What do I mean by that? Well, when you open up the pages of the Bible, you will meet numerous gods. For example, upon entering the land of Canaan, which is what the Israelites were were moving toward here, upon entering the land of Canaan, the Israelites would have encountered residents serving Dagon, Baal, Asherah, Ammonite, Kamosh, among other numerous deities of the land. Now, they were leaving the land of Egypt. And if you remember kind of that Egyptian history a little bit, they were leaving behind the gods of Isis, Hakat, Ra, Hathor, and Set, among others. The world at this time was, if you can imagine it, parceled out by uh, national deities that were worshipped in various ways. But let me tell you something. It still is that way today. In recent years, as America has become more diverse, we see this more clearly around us. What's interesting is, as I studied this, I had person after person say, those were the gods of the ancient days. In the West, we have these, and we do. But it's amazing how much we don't see the rest of the world. But as America has become more diverse, we see it. Right down here, if I get my position right here, I think, let's see, where am I? Yeah, right down here. Right down this way, if you drive down there, there's a mosque training center that trains Muslims. If you go up this way, drive out this way toward the Home Depot on El Dorado, there's a mosque out there. If you go down El Dorado this way, for you people that live on this side, you may not have ever seen this, but if you go down El Dorado this way and you look to the left, I think it's right past the school or maybe before the school, there's a Hindu temple up there, Hindu shrine. And here's the thing, if you kind of meal around in those particular, if you went to those neighborhoods right here at the end of October, you might see some things in the water. At the end of October, there is a five-day Durga Puja festival. And what they do is they take these idols after they've had that festival and they cast them into water. I'll never forget the first time, one October day, my family was walking down at Russell Creek Park in Plano, and we were looking in the water, and there were idols all over the place. And I was like, I feel like I'm in a third world country here. What is this? I can't believe this. Welcome to the new America. Jay Duma points out that from the formation of this command in Exodus, you may conclude that all these other gods were not to be worshipped alongside Yahweh. Nevertheless, they existed alongside Him. But we know that that is not true. That is not the case. The Bible holds that, that there is only one true and living God. And He created all things. 
Genesis 1.1 says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And it goes through Genesis chapter 1 and 2 and explains in details what that looked like. And, and the reality is, is that He spoke everything into being. He just spoke. I, I can't imagine the power of that, you know. I want a hamburger. Boy, that would be great. Boom, there it is. I mean, that's what He does. That's how he did it. So he created the heavens of the earth. In Exodus chapter 19, the chapter before this, in verse 3, he makes it clear that the whole earth is his. So the question is, is why are these gods then mentioned? Well, I, I mention it because they're there. They're there. But what is the issue with that? Where did they come from? That's the question we really need to consider. So if you'll flip back in your Bible to Romans chapter 1. We read this earlier. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. This, this, this section of Scripture actually reveals the sad truth and state of the hearts of fallen human beings. So I want you to just follow along, starting in verse 18. And we want to walk through Paul's thought process here as he lays this out. Think about it just for a minute. Okay, he says, first of all, fallen humanity in their righteousness suppressed the truth. What does that mean? Well, it goes on to say that for what can be known about God is plain because God has revealed it in creation. In His attributes, his, or I should say His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. In all things that he made. And so Rich Mullins has a song. And it's called Everywhere I Go I See You. And I've loved that song. And, I've been, and sometimes I'm annoyed by that song. Because that chorus just continues over and over again. Everywhere I go I see you. Everywhere I go I see you. Everywhere I go I see, I see you. And as I was listening to it recently. I was thinking about it. I'm like, I bet he did it on purpose. He is reminding us over and over and over again, everywhere we turn, we see God. We see Him in the sidewalks that we walk by every day. Because man created those sidewalks because God created him. But then we see it in, in the trees. We see it in the blades of grass. We see it in the flowers. Uh, we see it when a little puppy comes up to you and breathes his little puppy breath in your face. We see it when we look to one another. A couple weeks ago, I was um, at, I can't even remember where I was, and I was just watching the different people. And I love to people watch. And so I was watching the different people, and, and I'm like, how unique those people are. How strange. Um, when I, I used to go to work out at the Frisco place down here and, and, and there was a, a big guy down there and he just had this like mean looking face and I always thought, I wonder if that guy's mean. Because this is how I think. Like, I wonder if that guy's mean because he's a big muscular guy. I wonder if he's mean or if he's, if he's nice. And I got to speak to him a couple of times. I'm like, he's really nice. But he looks mean and fierce, you know. See, God made us all. He made all things. And so He continues. Although they knew God, they did not honor Him or give thanks to Him. See, they just wouldn't look to Him. They, they were rebellious. They're rebellious hearts, just like ours. If you go back in time, this is what's happened. This is the very beginning. As mankind began to spread throughout the earth. Hearts are rebellious. 
And he turns away from God. They don't know Him. They don't honor Him. They don't give thanks to Him. And then they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise. I know what we'll do. We'll make some gods. They became fools and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, animals, creeping things. That one's a creepy thought to me. Creeping things. I don't know if you want to worship creepy things, but people do, I guess. That's what happened back in time. That's what happened in the history of the earth. And that's why when you go into place after place after place, you will see idol after idol after idol after God after God after God. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And they worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator. So what... The Lord wants us to understand as He brings the children of Israel before Him to give them the commandments. What He wants us to understand from Paul's writing in Romans chapter 1 is that there is only one God, Yahweh, the Creator and Sovereign of all. But sadly, as a continuation of the sin in the garden, mankind sought to put other gods in place of God. Gods of their imagination. Gods of their own making. Gods of their desires. As I noted earlier, this is still true today, so let me give you an example. Mark Dever was teaching in a, in a doctrinal class, and he was teaching on the topic of God. And so he said some things, and he set up his talk about this, about who God is. And so a man raised his hand, and he said, you know, I, I don't know that I think of God in that way. And Mark said, oh, really? Well, how do you think of God? And so for the next you know, few minutes or so, he painted this picture of, of a friendly deity. He liked to think of God as being wise, as, as not meddling, as compassionate, but never overpowering. Ever so resourceful, but never interrupting. And he said, this, this is how I like to think about God. And after his soliloquy, Mark replied, well, thank you for telling us so much about yourself today. But what we're really here to talk about is God. Mark was very wise in his words, wasn't he? This illustration goes to show that in our fallenness and rejection of God, we're prone to create something to worship. Calvin himself said, the human heart is a perpetual idol factory. And so we form gods with our hands. We form gods in our mind. We were created to worship. And so the question again we have to ask is, is well, what do we worship? Who do we worship? The glorious idols of self include various forms of agnosticism and atheism. Even practical atheism of the day, which we can easily fall into of coming to church and worshiping the Lord. And so like when I hear people say, I'm going to church, they always talk about going to church instead of being the church. I always kind of have a red flag put up. So if you say that, be careful. Don't say that around me, okay? It's okay that you go to church, but I'd rather you think about being the church that worships the Lord gathered together. But the practical atheism is, is that I come to church and then I just live my life like normal. When I first became a Christian, I went through long periods of that in my life. Weeks upon weeks of it. 
like I tell my children from time to time, you know, I want to make that sin shorter and shorter and shorter. I'm, I will sin. I will walk, sometimes not think about God for an hour or so, maybe two. I want to make that shorter and shorter and shorter. Not to be a practical atheist. Further than this, wife of uh, C.S. Lewis, Joy Davidman, wrote a book called Fire on the Mountain in the 1950s. Um, she said this, if one is not fizzing, notice the, the vocabulary, if one is not fizzing with the ecstasy like a bottle of champagne toward the modern gods of sex, of science, of society, and the state, they are to be written off. That's in the 1950s. What would you think about today? <laughs> I love that fizzing with the excitement of sexuality, of, of the state, the state's going to save me, you know. Francis Bacon in his Novum Organum observed four classes of idols. And that's where I get this point from. The idols of the tribe, the idols of the cave, the idols of the marketplace, and the idols of the theater. Folks, they are all still with us today. All you have to do is open up your newspaper. Watch the Emmys for five seconds. Click on that link and read that story. But even more so, evaluate your own heart. See, it's easy for us to look out there and to point out all the idols. But what we need to do is to look into our own hearts and say, Lord, what are the idols that I hold dearly? What are those issues, those gods that I put before me? God simply says, put away those made-up gods. You shall have no other God before me. As Duma further writes, choosing for the Lord always means making a choice that excludes every other possibility. The choice for Yahweh is a radical choice. It's not a matter of both and or either or. I should say, it's not a matter of both and but either or. You cannot choose for Yahweh at the same time you hang on to the gods of Mesopotamia. You hang on to the gods of Egypt. The gods of the tribe, the cave, the marketplace, or the theater. No. Anyone choosing Yahweh must put away all other gods. So whom do you praise? Whom do you thank? Whom do you seek? Whom or what receives your highest adoration? G.K. Chesterton said that when men cease to worship God, they don't worship nothing. They worship anything. Whom or what do you worship? There are many things beyond this list that we have worked through today. So again, I ask you, it's just as a practical application here. Just search your own heart. Evaluate your heart. Let those words ring in your mind. You shall have no other gods before me. And let the love of the Lord capture you as you turn back to Him. 
Well, now let's take a closer look at what it entails as God's people to be called to undivided hearts before the one true God. So far, we have looked solely upon what this command forbids. Now what we want to do is to look at what this command commends us in terms of how we are to live. I told you last week that the, I actually said, I think the Westminster Shorter Catechism, and I was like, I can't believe I said it. But it's the Westminster Larger Catechism that lays out the commandments in like major detail, laying them out in terms of what's forbidden and in what it requires or commends to us. And so question 104 helps us here. The first thing that the, that the larger catechism lays out here is that we are to know and acknowledge the only true God and our God. What we see as we study the Bible and we move through the New Testament is that Jesus reveals the I am God whom Israel stood before in the fullest possible way. Jesus is the incarnate God, God with us, God the bridegroom, God the king, God the suffering servant, God the conquering savior, God the loving redeemer. When we hear these words, you shall have no other God before me, Jesus says this, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. So when Paul and Silas are are there before the Philippian jailer and he's ready to kill himself because he thinks they've all the prisoners have all escaped. Paul and Silas yell out to him, Don't do that. And he falls down before them. He says, You guys are so different than anybody I've ever seen. All the prisoners would have run, and you're just sitting here. How can this be? He had heard Paul praying, he had heard Paul singing hymns. Paul and Silas tell him, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You and your household. The first command demands devotion to the one God as it, expressed, as it, as it is expressed in devotion to the Son. For us today, no other God's means, no other name than the name of Jesus. For He alone shows us the Father. Kevin DeYoung highlights it this way. We can think of this first commandment in relationship to Christ as a tale of two mountains. God came down the mountain saying, worship me alone. Then a millennia later, He came down the mountain of transfiguration and said, this is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. It's amazing that a God who said, worship me and listen to my rules, now tells us to listen to His Son. If you don't know God and Christ, then you don't know Him. You can't acknowledge Him. So come and trust and believe that Jesus is the Son who reveals the Father and the power of the Spirit. So we are to know and to acknowledge the only true God as our God. Secondly, this commandment commends us to worshiping and glorifying God in all of life. If I were to ask you this question, could you answer it? What is the chief end of man? What? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. 
Paul reminds us of this in Romans 12, 1 and 2. If you remember, he says, I want you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, a reasonable service of worship. When he says that, he's basically saying, don't just give Jesus your heart. He wants more than that. He wants all of you. He wants the totality of who you are, what you are. Give Him all of your life and all of your life. Because that's all He wants. So whether we're worshiping with our brothers and sisters gathered here in Christ, or whether we're working every day for the man, or maybe we're working every day for our family, whether we're coaching or playing sports, going to school, cleaning our homes or cleaning out our cars, buying or selling real estate, vacationing in a tropical paradise, or talking to a loved one on the phone. Whatever the case may be, all of life is to be lived before a holy God. Westminster Larger Catechism again drills it in like this. And I want you to listen to these words, how it lays it out. We are to worship and glorify God by thinking. That's a novel idea in today's world. Think. Meditate. Remember. Highly esteem. Honor. Adore. Choose. Love. Desire. Fear Him. Believe Him. Trust Him. Hope in Him. Delight in Him. Rejoice in Him. Be zealous for Him. Call upon Him. Give Him all praise and thanks. Yield all obedience and submission to Him with the whole person. Be careful in all things to please Him. And sorrowful. When anything we do is offensive to Him. And finally, walk humbly with Him. And the question is, is will you, by the power of the Spirit, do that? That's what He calls us to do. Now imagine with me that you're talking with a young man. And he's been asking you how he can win back the affections of his wife. How can I win back the affections of my wife? Will you please help me? You look at him and you tell him, well, would you give her flowers? Would you buy her a new dress? Would you help her wash the dishes? Would you make much of the meal that she provided for you? Will you clean the bedrooms, make the bed? Will you give her a weekend away with her friends? And that man looks back at you and says, you know what, I've done all of this. To which you turn and look at him and say, great, there's only one thing left for you to do. Give up your other lover. These are the words that the rich young ruler heard from Jesus. And the man went away dejected. But one of the most interesting things, I think, in all the Scriptures is that he went away. The text says that Jesus loved him. When we 
live our lives in a way that we're worshiping other gods. That's what we're doing before the Lord. But Jesus loves us. Jesus loves us. And thankfully, our God is a jealous God. He won't let our affections of others in our lives. Um, he won't let them rule. He continually points them out to us in His commands. And especially this command, you shall have no other gods before me. Even if it causes short-term hurt and anguish. Aren't we glad that our God is a jealous God? And that He loves us. Earlier we sang the words and we could actually change the words here just a bit. The Lord loves His bride more than we know. All that He does, He does to show that He'll never forsake us. He'll never let us go. The Lord loves His bride more than we know. And He does. Let us pray. Father, thank You for loving us so much that You gave us Jesus. Forgive us for our foolishness of chasing other gods. Of specifically for most of us here, we don't make idols that we worship. But we have idols in our hearts. Thank you for Jesus' cleansing mercy. Thank you for His love and grace. Thank you. Thank you that even though we're not worthy, you are through your Son, Jesus. You have made us worthy. We give you praise. We give you glory. Help us to know and acknowledge you. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.